We're talking about the sanctity of life, lives set apart for the glory of God, and that's exactly where we're going this morning in Romans 12. Uh, we've been studying through the book of Romans, verse by verse, so in your bulletins there is a little outline, you can follow along with some blanks. Uh, in your Bibles will be in Romans chapter uh, 12, verses 1 and 2, and uh, the verses will be on the screen, uh, but you can follow along in your own, in your own version. Um, we, all, we all want a good life, right? We talk about what, what a... Well, we, we don't want a bad life. We, we don't want to live a kind of life that we regret, a, a life of shame. We don't want a, a life that doesn't go right. And we want to one day stand before our God and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That God approved of our life, that it was acceptable, that it was honoring to him, and that he would look back at Justin's life and say, that was a good life. We all want that. But the problem is, is we often mistake what we need in order to get that good life. And then we often think it's a lot more about what we need to get than what it is that we need to give in order to have that kind of a life. And we might think, man, I need, I need some circumstances to change. I need more money. I need a different job. I need, uh, I need some changes in my relationships or in my family. I need people to treat me differently, love me better, serve me better, or even we'll kind of spiritualize it and just say, well, if I finally found the perfect church, then everything would be fine, right? We just had a better preacher, right? That one you don't have to worry about. Um, man, if we just had more children's programs, right? Better things for the kids. Or you know, if God gave me more things that I needed in my life. We, we kind of play this game where I need more, I need more. But John MacArthur, he said it this way. The key to um, spiritual victory is not getting all you can get. But it's giving all you have. It's not getting all you can get. It's giving all that you have, which can seem backwards from our mentality so often. So think about it this way. What, what do you need to have your best life now? Like maybe for you, it's like, well, man, if I had this job that I've been chasing for a while, or maybe it's this specific position in the work world that I'm already operating in. What about your dream home? Which one do you need to have the good life? How many bathrooms? How many bedrooms? How many garages on a cold day like today? Or, may, or maybe we think, what, what, what's your idea of a perfect spouse that you need? Careful, they're sitting right next to you. It's a long drive home. Um, what, what, what kind of kids do I, how many kids, what, what kind of kids, right? How, how well behaved do my kids need to finally be? Uh, how much money do you need or want? How about vacations? How many vacations a year do you need to have to be happy? Um, what about health? Like that one surgery that I'm waiting for, that one alteration, that one, you know, more pound that I need to lose. Now imagine for a second you had all of that. All your dreams are fulfilled. Is that the good life? Jesus had some words to speak to that. He said this, Matthew 16, If any of you wants to be my follower, and that's the good life, to follow Jesus, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain, if you get the whole world, but lose your own soul? Jesus says this, man, if you live for everything that you can selfishly get, you end up losing it all, including your own soul. And you become an isolated person, dead to God in, the, in a miserable kingdom of your own design. That is not a good life, and it's certainly not a good eternity. And Jesus says, you want, you want the good life? Give it away. Give it away. And, and Paul is going to say the same thing here in Romans chapter 12. 
He's going to show us, we're going to see this morning, the basis of the good life, the method of getting that good life, and then the result of, of the good life. And we're going to see at the heart of it, what, what it comes down to is giving our life to someone else. So the first one we're going to look at here is the basis of the good life. The basis of the good life is revelation. Two weeks ago, we looked at this as we introed back into Romans 12 after taking a break. And um, we see in Romans 12, 1, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of, or other translations say, by or because of God's mercy. And we said that our lives need to be built on something. That there's a foundation that we need to operate from. That you and I are not Nike Christians who just do it. We don't just live life because that's the way it is. We need to build it on on some sort of a foundation. And what Paul says here is the foundation that it needs to be built on, the reason that we live, is in light of what? God's mercy. It's the mercies of God that we should build our lives on. Now, when he sums up, when he says the mercies of God, he is summing up Romans chapters 1 through 11 that we spent much of last year studying the plan and the power of salvation, the gospel in our lives. And what he said is, essentially the gospel is this, that God saw us in our helpless, hopeless state and he showed us mercy. And we said mercy is showing someone compassion and rescue. That God loved us, that God has emotion toward us, so he showed us compassion and care and pity and and then therefore he took action. He rescued us. He saved us from our sinful state. And we said it's just like a child, a young child, as we celebrate the sanctity of life and acknowledge the needs in our, in our sinful, broken world. Imagine there's a child who was involved in sex trafficking, some sort of slavery, and we said if, if there's a family, an adoptive family that comes in and rescues them, shows compassion, shows mercy, and takes them out of that world of slavery. And now this child can live in light of this new reality, this revelation that they've been shown. They have a new family where they're safe from the harm and danger and bondage of the old life, and now they're ushered into a new life where there's a new level of safety and shelter, and they can be fed, and they can experience life, and they can experience safety and security in the arms of these new parents. That you and I, we've been rescued from slavery to sin. God showed us his mercy, his compassion and rescue. In Romans 12 through 16, the rest of this book is going is to say to us, you don't have to live like that anymore. That you've been free from slavery to sin. And that now we have a, a new life. We have a, a new name written down in glory. We have a new daddy who loves us and provides for us and protects us. And we have a new family, new brothers and sisters. We have a new way of treating people. We have a new hope. We have a new way to see our possessions, to see our time, to see other people. And Paul says, build your life on this reality. And what we're going to see here is we're taking this turn in the book of Romans from chapters 1 through 11 that talked about the truth, told us us the reality of our new life, to Romans 12 through 16, which shows us the application of that new life. So Romans 1 through 11 said, here's who you are in Christ, this new creation— And then Romans 12 through 16 says, now in light of who we are, this is what we do. Romans 1 through 11 said, here's the revelation. The revelation is in view of God's mercy, because God showed you mercy, then Romans 12 through 16, live this way. And here's the the hinge that we're swinging on. In view of the revelation, as we see God's mercy to us in Jesus, therefore live this way. And what does he say to do? We see in these first two verses, he says, give yourselves to him. Present your bodies. 
present your bodies. Now, the method, the second one here, the method of the good life is consecration. If the basis of the good life is revelation, the, the method of the good life is consecration. This word consecrate, it means to set apart, to dedicate something to. Usually set apart to God for, for his purposes, for something special. My family growing up, we had this red plate. This was not any ordinary plate. This was the special plate. And it told me, it was a very validating plate. You are special today. Thanks, plate. And so we'd have this plate, and you did not use this plate for any ordinary occasion. You didn't have lunch on a Tuesday. You'd only use this plate for special days, for special boys like this. And as I sat there, that is a plate of spaghetti and big bird cake. That's disgusting. I've grown, I've grown, I've grown. And, and, and we ever, if we ever tried to use this plate for ordinary occasion, right, we'd tell on each other. Because that's not what the, that plate is intended for. It's a special purpose, set aside, set aside for something special. And in the same way, Paul says, those of us who have seen the mercies of God, the revelation, now in, in response will present themselves to God, this consecration, giving ourselves to him, to no longer be used for ordinary purposes. He says, we are now set aside We are set aside by God for for his purposes, to do what he would have us do. Not ordinary, not worldly, certainly not evil purposes. We are set apart. We are consecrated. So what does this look like? Four aspects we see here in verse 1 of what this consecration looks like. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, he appeals to present your bodies. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. The first thing we see here is that we are to do this willingly. Willingly present your bodies, he says. Now, this word present, it means to offer or to place yourself in front of. So we are, we are saying that we are literally placing ourselves in the presence of God at his disposal for, for his use and in his purposes. And we're to do this. We're to do this willingly. So this is, and I'm just going to pull this uh, illustration at random. There's a boyfriend who has a girlfriend. And he sees her. Right? And he loves her. He says, baby, I love you unconditionally. I don't care who you are, where you're from. Don't care what you did. Oh, I got some Backstreet Boys fans in the back. All right, I like that. He says, I love you just the way you are. I treat, and, and he treats her like a sister princess. And this girl, as she looks at this guy and the unconditional love that he's showing her, and she responds and looks at him with the heart eye emoji, Right? I love you, baby. And in light of your unconditional love for me, I'm yours. Right? Is that how it works? Is that how dating works? I don't know. I'm, I won't go there. Um, so, so, so here, in light of the love that they're seeing, they give themselves to somebody else. And what Paul says here is when we properly see God's mercy, when we see his love and his rescue that he showed us, it persuades us It persuades us to give him our bodies, our whole persons, our mind, our soul, and our spirits. And we come willingly. See, a slave can be owned by a master. And that master can force the slave to do its bidding, right? To do its will. But he can't have all the slave. He can get that slave to outwardly conform. But he can't force that slave to willingly obey him from his heart. He can't do that. And this is, see, God is the most powerful being in the universe. If he wanted to, he could force us to, to, to do obey him. He could create us without any sort of will and just kind of robotically do what he tells us to do. But that's not what God wanted. He wanted love. And so he created us with a choice to choose, to willingly 
give ourselves to him or not. And so what he does is he woos us by his mercy and his grace. And the great drawing power of the knowledge of God that we've been rescued and loved, we see that. And so we come to God with the heart emoji eyes and we say, we give ourselves to you fully. With joy, we surrender ourselves to the God who has loved us and rescued us in the person of Jesus. And so we give ourselves to him. What he says here is, I appeal to you. Notice Paul doesn't say, I command you. You, you, you must. He says, I appeal to you. Or maybe your version says, I urge you. Paul says, based on the mercies of God, as you see his mercies, that the natural inclination of the heart will be to give ourselves to him. There's something more beautiful and powerful and deeper than just rote obedience. And we've come to find, if you want to try to save your life, hold on to your own life, you're going to lose it. But when we give our life to him, there you find it. And what we discover is when we willingly give ourselves to God, life is so much better when it's in his hands than the chaos and the destruction that it is when it's in my own hands. So we're to give our bodies willingly. The second thing is to give it sacrificially. Sacrificially, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice sacrifice. Now, you might look at this phrase, and this is what we call an oxymoron, where you have two words that put together make a contradictory phrase, a living sacrifice. So it's like the, the, the phrase jumbo shrimp, right? Like, how does that work? Um, a, a couple that I, I pulled out here, um, they are pretty ugly. She's seriously funny. You are clearly confused. You've made a fine mess I have my favorite, an original copy. Wait a second. How does that work? How can a sacrifice be living? Right? By definition, you know, in the Old Testament, when they would put, you know, the bull or, or the, the sheep on the altar, that, that, that animal was killed. So how can Paul be calling us into offering a living sacrifice? If, the, if the, it's a sacrifice, it, it's going to die, right? So what does this look like? Well, in the Old Testament, as believers would come to God, they would, they would present these sacrifices they would bring a bull or a sheep or, or a pigeon, and they would sacrifice this animal on the altar. And this was, this was the way, the central act of worship in the Old Testament is they would come to God, they were acknowledging their sin, that death demands the payment of sin, and that this, this lamb or this, this pigeon or this bull was acknowledging that, that this lamb, this animal is dying in my place, and that blood symbolically would purify them from their sins and allow them to commune with God in, in worship. But see, the people of Israel knew that these, this blood, the blood of these bulls and these goats could not take away their sin. We see this in Hebrews chapter 4. They knew that these, these animals were just a symbol of one to come. Because these are just animals. They can't cleanse anybody of sin. But we see hundreds of years later, and on the cross, the Lamb of God comes. And what did he come to do? Hebrews 10.10, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus is the reality of those Old Testament shadows. What the bulls and the goats could never do, Jesus did. And when he shed his blood for us, dying in our place, absorbing God's wrath, his blood, the blood of an innocent life that was God, purified us, cleansed us from all sin so that we might be acceptable in his sight. The perfect sacrifice. And as a result, what Paul says here can become true. Present your bodies to, to, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And listen, the reason that we're holy and acceptable to God is not because we clean ourselves up. Not because we do enough good deeds so that God might be impressed and say, fine, you can come in. 
And it's certainly not that physically we present ourselves with, without, a, without a wrinkle or that we have the right body weight. He says you're holy and acceptable because you've been purified by the blood of Jesus. You can come into my presence. So, so what does this look like then? How, how is it that we can be a living sacrifice? The key to this is what we are presenting to God and what we're not presenting to God. When Jesus died on the cross, he was buried in a grave, and three days later he rose again to a new life, to this eternal life. And those of us who have been placed into Christ Jesus have died to the old sin nature, buried with Christ, and now raised to a new way of life. And what Paul is saying here, don't come with your, your old nature, we're not coming with our sin, our, who we were as sinners. My niece, June, she'll come up to me, like she'll chew up, when she eats something she doesn't like, she'll spit it back out and then give it to me to throw away. I say, get your, your disgusting food away from me, you crazy little girl. I don't want it, right? I reject your offering. You go throw it away or go to your mother, right? She made you, she can deal with it. Sanctity of life, sanctity of life. So, I reject that. In the same way, God, if we come to God as sinners and we present our old nature, God says, I can't accept that. That was the whole problem. We couldn't come into his presence as sinners. But Paul does not say to offer your sinful nature to God. Look at what he says. He said this already back in Romans 6. Present yourselves, same word, to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We have been risen to a new life with Jesus. And it's that new life created in the image of Jesus that we offer to him. And so now, as living sacrifices, those who have died to sin and raised with Jesus to a new life are offered to him as instruments to be used for his purposes. And that can be holy and acceptable because Jesus is holy and acceptable. We come willingly, we come sacrificially. We also come logically. We come logically. He says at the end here, which is your spiritual worship. Now, this, this is probably not the best translation. The Greek word here is logikos, which is, you, know, you can see the word logic in there in, in the Greek word. And so it would probably be better translated logical or reasonable. And actually, some of your translations will, will say that. I believe it's the NIV that says this is your reasonable act of, of worship. And what Paul is saying here is this is, this is the logical outcome You see, our bodies don't belong to us in the first place, right? God made us. We belong to him as his creation. And then when we went off the rails, Jesus bought us back with his blood. And in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, you're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You were bought with a price. Jesus paid top dollar for you, and now we belong to him. So this is a logical, reasonable thing to do, to offer ourselves to the one that we belong to in the first place. We're coming home. Coming home. Finally, we do this worshipfully. He says, this is, which is your spiritual worship? This is worshipful. We come worshipfully. You know, the the phrase here, the idea is a love offering. At Christmas Eve, uh, when we take a love offering to give to those in need in our community, it's, it's your choice. We don't have ushers, like, peering over your shoulder. Like, if you don't pull out another 20 right now, I'm going to mess you up, right? We, do, we don't force that on you. It's not duty. It's a heart of love and a heart of gratitude that says, I want to give. And in the same way, we're called to give our lives to him based on his mercy. Not forced by duty, but wooed by love. And this word here, worth, worship, comes from the root worth-ship. What we do is we come to God and we say, in, in view of your mercy, not as fearful outward obedience, but inwardly, we come to treasure him, to value him, and in an act of glorifying him out of gratitude, we say, I want, I want to, I want to give my life 
to you, my worship to you. And so Romans 12, 1 and 2 is, is telling us that all of our life should be worship. Worship is not just singing on a Sunday morning in a service. It's the life that says, I was put here on planet Earth to show the world how much my God is worth. Who Jesus is in and through my life, reflected in my actions, in my words, in my behavior, and in my character. And there is a way to live and to love like that. And that's the good life. But how does that work? How do we do that? Well, that brings us to our third point. The result of the good life, of a life that based on the revelation of his mercy is given to him, will be transformation. Number three, transformation. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present. Now, here's the, here in, this, in these two verses, this is the action word. This is the command that we're given, the only command that we're given in these two verses, to present. So our part is to present. Now, verse two says God's part. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Notice it doesn't say transform yourself. This is be transformed. It's a passive word. So as we present, God transforms. So imagine that you're a cake. All right? Yeah, Chuck likes that, don't you, buddy? So we, we, if I'm a cake, right? What a good life. What a sweet life. I can, I can put myself in the oven, but I can't bake myself, right? That's the oven's work. Now, if I don't put myself in the oven, I'm not getting baked. But as I put myself into the oven, the oven does the work that transforms me from a lump of batter into some delicious birthday cake. This is God's work, and this is what 2 Corinthians 3 says. We all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. There again, there's the passive word. Being transformed into the same image, the image of God, the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Justin. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the Spirit's work to transform us into the image of Jesus. But we must present ourselves to him. If we don't offer himself, we stiff-arm his work. He's not going to force himself upon us. We must present ourselves, and he'll transform. But there's an alternative here. There is an alternative. If we don't want to present ourselves, here's your other option. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. So we have an option. We can be transformed in the image of Christ, or we can be conformed into the ways of this world. This age, this evil age, is really probably the, the best translation there. And so what he's saying here is, man, there's no neutral ground. It's one or the other. We, we don't get to do, just do what we want. We're not you know, free-range uh, humans. We'll either present ourselves to God or to the ways of this world. See, we ha- when the ball goes up, we're playing on a team. The only choice we have is which team do we want to play on. And if you want to win, I would suggest Duke, who crushed Virginia yesterday. Go Devils. Can you say go Devils in church? I don't know if that's allowed. Um, so so here's, there's two things here. There's, there's a conflict around us, first of all. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed. Now, this word conform is the Greek word syschematizo, which is, you see the word scheme in there, right? So this is an outward form. This is an outward form. The word means to conform oneself to another's pattern. To conform oneself to another pattern. It's an outward expression, and here's the, here's the rub, of something that doesn't come from within. So it's changed on the outside, but it is not changed on the inside. Do you catch that? So for Halloween years ago, I asked my mom, what I wanted more than anything in the world was to become a pumpkin. Now, not dress like a pumpkin, I wanted to be a pumpkin, right? And you laugh, but this was awesome. As I, I, I want to pull my arms in and pull my feet in, and all you see is a pumpkin, right? But do not be fooled, you guys. 
I know that look. And my, my mom is a really good seamstress. But that's not a pumpkin. It's me. It's Justin, right? So, so I, might, I might look a lot like a pumpkin, but inside it's still Justin. It's still lovable, wonderful Justin, right? And, and so a couple years later, we, we were underdog and Minnie Mouse and, and apparently some 80s child that didn't want to dress up for Halloween. Um, and we, we, we look, we can change our outward appearance. We can, we can look like underdog. We can look like Minnie Mouse. We can look like an adorable little bunny. But the reality is that that's ha- dressing up for Halloween just changes your outside. It does not change your inside. And what, what, what Paul is saying here is do not go to Halloween like the world. Do not conform outwardly to what the world's doing in, in the ways of, of the world. He says stop it. Do not. Do not. The word here is stop. Stop wearing the mask. Stop looking like something you're not. Alva J. McLean said it this way. This, this age is an evil one and it's in a passing order of things. If you conform yourself to this age, you will pass away with it. It's an ominous tone. And First John 2 backs that up. This world is passing away. This evil world, now we're not talking about flesh and blood. We're talking about this system, this, this sinful fleshly system of this world. One day will be destroyed. It will pass away. And he says, if, if you conform to that, then you're passing away with it. Don't go that direction. Don't conform to the world. Don't pretend to be something you're not if you're a new creation in Christ. So what's the challenge? If the conflict is don't be conformed, the challenge here is to be transformed. Now, this is a different word than conform, and it's also different in the Greek. It says this word in the Greek is the metamorpho. Metamorpho, which means to change into another form. So this is different. So this is, this is an inward nature changing versus just an outward form. So we know, and of course you see the word metamorpho, we think of the word metamorphosis, which is the process of a butterfly, right? Now, listen, the caterpillar doesn't just dress up for Halloween like a butterfly and pretend and staple uh, wings on its body and just pretend to be something it's not. It undergoes this process called metamorphosis, where the caterpillar changes into something completely different. It becomes a butterfly, And so then, yes, it starts to outwardly look like a butterfly, but it's because of the change that's happening within. Paul says the same thing has happened to us. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, dead to sin, right? Behold, the new has come. We've been raised to a new life. We don't just do something new. We are something new. And therefore, in Colossians 3, it says, you have put on, this is past tense, have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Again, we're being conformed into the image of Christ. Daily renewal based on what, and what he's saying here is be who you are. As he starts to change you from the inside out. So what does this look like? What does this look like? This does not look like pretending, stapling the fruit of the spirit to our chest pretending to love, pretending to be patient, and trying to work harder on our own. Here, here he tells us the process. The process is this. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. What is being renewed in us is our mind, is the way we think, the way we see the world, the way we interact with that world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And again, this isn't our work. This is what he's doing in and through us. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration. That means to, to bring to life again, to regenerate, and renewal, to make this old thing new. How? Of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is the Spirit's work in our lives. So how does this work? What does this process look like? Well, again, to go back to 2 Corinthians 3 that we already quoted, there's two things. The first thing he says is we are beholding the glory of the Lord. 
beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, this is the outside-in process. As the Holy Spirit shows us the glory of Christ. Now, how do we see that? Well, we hear the gospel. We hear the good news of his mercy, of his compassion and rescue. We see God in his word. We see God in a beautiful week like we've had. We see him in his creation. We see him in other people as, they, as fellow image bearers. And as we behold the glory of God revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, namely in his word, that's outside in, there then becomes an inside out process. We are being transformed. That comes from the inside out. So as we behold Christ, there's this change that happens from within each and every one of us. He changes our hearts and he changes our minds. So this is what happens slowly for the believer. If you walk into a room, your mindset starts to change. Instead of walking into the room and putting self in the center, and comparing yourself, isn't it exhausting to walk into a room and always be comparing yourself to someone else? And the jealousy, the envy that comes from that, the pride, the anger, the, the, the anxiety. As we come in, and our old mind, our old way of thinking was me, 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 me. He says, I'm going to give you a new mind. And as you come into a room, you're going to start to think differently. And you're going to start to think about other people before yourself. And how do I show kindness and self-control and patience and peace? To give life, not take life. He's going to start to change our hearts. And John Piper said it beautifully. I mean, as we are living sacrifices, we are freed slaves. This is, this is the reality. He says, you are free in Christ. We're a slave, but his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Amen? Because when you do from the inside what you love to do, you are free. If what you love to do is what you ought to do. And that's what transformation means. When you are transformed into Christ, you love to do what you ought to do. That's freedom. Do you see what he's saying here? As he changes your heart, he changes your desires, he changes your will. And so now as new creations in Christ, we're going to have a new love. We're going to have a new outlet. Instead of faking, instead of pretending to be Christ-like for Halloween, I dress up like Jesus, he is being formed in me from the inside out. My love changes, and therefore, obedience to God come, becomes who I am and what my heart wants to do. I long to daily, consistently want to do what God wants me to do. And that's the work that Christ is doing in you. He's changing your will. And that's the result. That's the purpose. He says here, to know and do the God's will. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. The outcome is to know, and not just know God's will, but to do what God wills. If you want to know what God's will is for your life, and, and all of us do, right? We want to know what, what he has for us, what his plan and his purposes is. The only way we're going to know that, this is for those who have seen his mercy, the revelation of his mercies, and those who have surrendered their bodies as living sacrifices. Those are the ones who will come to this understanding. William Newell said it this way, only a yielded will, the word yield means to offer, to give, only the one who has surrendered their life to the Lord, only the yielded will can desire, discover, or choose God's will. So if you want to know what God's plan is for your life, if you want to know what his will is for your life, the first thing you got to do in the revelation of his mercies is to consecrate, is to give yourself to him. A couple years back when I was, I had gotten through school and, and I was going to be a teacher, right? That was my plan. But then the church asked me here if I would consider coming on and being a pastor. And that was a tough decision. I didn't know what to do. And I'm going, God, what do you want from me? Right? But my default, you know what my default was? Talk it out. I'm a Frankino, baby. That's what we do best. Talk, talk, talk. So I'm talking. I'm strategizing. I'm thinking. I'm looking at all the options. We're just having the discussions. And it wasn't for several months that I finally came to God and just said, God, 
But what do you want? I belong to you. This is your life. This isn't my body. This, this is your body. This isn't my vocation. This is, this is what... And, and when I, it was only when I yielded my will to him that I started to see clearly what it is that he had for me. Now listen, we've talked about this. It's not typically going to be God whispering from heaven, this job versus that job, this spouse versus that spouse, this brand of orange juice versus that brand of orange juice, because that's one's easy. You just get simply orange, right? It's the best. What he's going to show us is going to change the way that we think, the way that we see, and as we get into his word and know what his heart is for us, he's going to give us a heart that wants to obey his, the kind of life that he wants us to live and to actually see that there is freedom to serve Christ with this spouse or that spouse, with this job or that, dra- that job. And even you heathens that drink concentrate, God can use you too, right? That's not a problem. So what does this look like? What does this look like? Well, what does this look like in specific situations? Well, the rest of Romans 12 through 16 is going to walk us through that very thing. He's going to show us how we treat each other. This, this new life, the way that we treat each other in, in a community of believers. What about our enemies? What about those that seem to be against us? How do we, how do we respond to them? What about the government? We're going to get into Romans 13. We're really going to get into the, some sticky situations there. How do we respond to the government? What about those in our lives that have weaker consciences versus stronger consciences? Can I drink alcohol? I mean, all the, what, is, what does this look like in, in the Christian life? It's going to be a ride. It's going to be quite a ride. But if you want to live the good life, if you want to live the kind of life that God intends for you to have, this is not about what you can get. It's what you give. Because listen, here's the reality. We have everything we need in Jesus. We've already got all that we need. And so now in view of God's mercy, we give ourselves to him willingly, sacrificially, as sacrifices to him, being transformed into his image. And so I want us to, I want us to challenge us to do this this week. There's a, I think there's a lot of times there's a point in time for us, even though we die daily, we surrender daily. Um, so if, you, if you'd stand with me here as we close. Um, and I want us to position ourselves before the Lord. And if you just close your eyes just to be able to focus, if, if, if you're able to. If you're able to stand, if you're able to close, but all of us in our hearts, I want us to do a couple things here and and, um, to first of all acknowledge that we are in a room right now where the presence of God exists, not because we're in a church building, but because we're two or more gathered in his name. He says, I'm there with you. Now, if you will, and this this is your call, and this is just a symbol, but if you lift your hands to him. And we come before him. And in your heart, we say this, we say, God, I present my body to you. It's yours, it's not mine. I want to surrender to you as a living sacrifice as one alive from the dead who has been shown mercy. And so God, what do you want me to do with my life? What do you want my eyes to look at? What do you want my brain to think about? What do you want my hands to do? Where do you want my feet to go? What do you want my tears to be shed for? What do you want me to do with my time, with my resources? 
And this is not us creating something nice and acceptable to God and he's impressed with what we've conjured up on our own. It's his mercy that loved us. It's his mercy that rescued us. It's his mercy that bought us by his blood. And we are just simply surrendering to him what he already owns. And we say, I trust you. I trust you infinitely more with my life than I trust myself with it. I've seen what happens when my life's in my hands and it's not pretty. And like Jesus in the garden, we say, not my will, but yours be done, even if it means the cross. Even because it means the cross. And this Christ who's in us will say this from the heart. And so we say, here's my life, Lord. It's yours. I want to show the world the value and worth of Jesus through it. That's worship. That's the good life. So Father, we come as your people. Maybe there's someone in here that's never bowed the knee, has never surrendered their life to you. But the core of it is we can't, you can, and we got to let you. So we give ourselves to you. Change us from the inside out. Transform us into the image of Jesus that we would be your people who love like you love because it's your love in and through us. And this community, this world would be changed because of the love of Jesus comes through our hearts, the renewing of our mind that we would begin to do what we love to do because you're changing our hearts and changing what we love and changing what we want. May we do your will by your Holy Spirit, and for your glory. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus that was sacrificed for us that we present ourselves and come to you in that name as living sacrifices. Amen.